everybody. Thanks again for joining us. And um, today we're speaking with Danny Peppers, the owner and editor of the Stewart County Standard. And so we want to thank you, Danny, for joining us. Uh, we just want to speak with you a little bit about reporting on uh, the disappearance and murders of Carla Atkins and Vicki Stout. So what can you tell us a little bit about the time you remember um, on the times you reported on uh, Carla and Vicki? Well, I, you know, I was too young when it first happened. Uh, I was in middle school, so I really didn't know much about it or, or anything else at the time. And then when I started this paper, though, the reporter who uh, at the time, uh, you know, it happened, he was actually working for the local paper here at the time, and he wrote about the story, you know, several stories and stuff. And I actually have I actually have some papers here. I'll grab my phone because we are having to do it over the over the phone. But we had uh, just a little explanation here of kind of how this went. Is um, when we ran uh, uh, it first started running stories after I started the paper in May of 2015. Started mailing it to every mailbox in the county. I wanted it to be all local. And I have an editor's note in here in one of the first stories um, that we had, but it kind of explained the timeline of how we started this because we, we really wanted to generate some interest in this story because it was coming up on the 35th anniversary of the girls who were murdered in LBL. And, and you know, a lot of people that live here now never knew about it or heard about it or anything else, and it was one of the things that um, never happened here. Uh, at the time, of course, there were a lot of rumors about, you know, cover-up, incompetence, uh, everything you could think of. But I think a lot of it was just the absolute inexperience of any law enforcement here of dealing with something of such a horrible nature as what happened to these girls. And I really think that that kind of hindered, the, you know, everything that was done. But what we've got in the, in the, in the editor's notes, that I wrote, I said, uh, and this was in the story that uh, David Ross wrote. He was a reporter at the time uh, for the Stuart Houston Times, that was the local paper. He invested, you know, had a lot of information and stuff. But I, I wrote, in the summer of 2015, the Stuart County Standard began running an eight-week series of stories on the unsolved murders of Carla and Vicki, uh, you know, Carl Atkins, Vicki Stout, the stories were written by standard reporter David R. Ross, who had worked as a journalist in the area for decades and covered the unsolved Stout Atkins murder case uh, from almost the outset. Stewart County Standard is Stewart County's only locally owned and operated news organization. Um, they're... <clears throat> And what we had in there is that there, you know, this is the follow-up on that story. And what it talked about it was how, you know, there's so many things that happened when the FBI was actually investigating whether LBL would be considered federal property or not. It's located in Stewart County. But we had so many, um, so much interest in it. And, uh, you know, we ran, like I said, eight stories, and then the vigil happened. And uh, it was amazing, the amount of turnout of people at the vigil. 
uh, you know, we did a story on that in October of 2015. We had a story about the vigil, and I don't know if you can see it much uh, in here, but we had a picture of, and there was a lot of people there, and there was a TBI agent that was looking over newspapers. Here, I'm trying to figure out this. Yes, there you go. Push it next to the computer. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, we had the memorial visual. Uh, it was filled with, uh, you know, I mean, and we felt like the Holy Spirit of God Saturday moving uh, during that anniversary memorial for the, the half-sisters. You know, they were 16, 14 years old. I mean, that is no way uh, to think about what could happen to them. But, um, you know, there were a lot of people there. National Public Radio covered the event. Um, you know, WKMS, uh, Murray State uh, recorded the vigil, and it began with a celebration of life. So there was a whole lot of interest that was created after we ran that series of stories based on uh, things that had been reported, some things that hadn't been reported. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it really kind of led to, it led to, uh, actually, in and let me hold this up a little closer. Where they actually came down uh, in Christmas and see mm -hmm. this story was 2015 saw a movement in the unsolved uh, murder case, and that's when the TBI actually put out this uh, age. And I know y'all put this on your 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 podcast before, but there was a lot of interest in this. And it was sad. I, I feel like it was sad because we really hoped that there would generate some interest of things that hadn't been hadn't been done before. And it kind of bothered me that we did these stories and we reported on the vigil. The the, the TBI agent was actually looking over um, the papers that were laid out on the table. Not one, not one TBI agent ever came by and asked me never came by and interviewed me as the owner and publisher of the local newspaper that mailed the paper to every mailbox in the county. And um, now D.A. Crouch, I have to give him credit, he actually came down and held a, a series of meetings at Legends Bank looking for anybody that wanted to talk about information they may have on the case. And I really, he never really got any new credible information. You know, we had people come by. There's somebody I don't want to really mention his name. He's dead. He, he, he died a couple of years ago, but he came by, and, and he had a – one of the girls told me that worked here at the time said that he, he had an old, old cornflake cereal box that had collapsed, and it was full of newspaper articles and, and different things about this case. And he really talked like he he knew something. And, you know, he, he said that he approached law enforcement, uh, but they never they never really give him, any, you know, they never followed up with him. But it, it's almost like it seemed like he knew something, but it was a little worried about his, his credibility was a little in question, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, do you have any questions so, on that uh, so far? You said that that fella passed away a couple years ago? Yeah, yeah. And I 
and I don't want to mention his name just because of his family. I would if an investigator wanted to talk to me and come by and talk, but, you know, he, I mean, he mentioned some stuff. He mentioned a term, said the Dover Mafia at the time. It was a nickname of a group that sold drugs at the time, and I know I have talked to y'all about uh, getting, uh, trying to get a hold of some old uh, uh, court records and stuff, but with the COVID and everything else, you know, everything's been so shut down, it's been really difficult. But he talked about how he saw a brown van. Uh, he talked about how he was in a in a house that he he felt like he heard the girls in a back room that had been chained up or or something. I'm not sure exactly what, but um, uh, you know, he he was very strange. And um, he seemed very skittish, like he was scared to talk about it. He was scared to, you know, but he wanted to be put in touch with with David, and I put him in touch with him, and nothing come from that meeting. Uh, you know, I don't know if he was maybe intimidated a little bit uh, and didn't talk anymore, and then uh, he passed away. I heard that he had newspapers all over his, his room, about the, you know, in his, in his, in his house that was all over, you know, where he was kind of obsessed with this case. I've heard other names mentioned. I've heard other names mentioned that are no longer with us. Um, so it's really hard to know where it, because, you know, for me publishing a newspaper, I have to be very careful, probably more careful than y'all on the internet. Uh, and, and, and I know more careful than on Facebook, apparently. So I really am careful to make sure that we put whatever we put in the newspaper can be documented and backed up. And the things that, there were things that we heard, but we, you know, I never felt like they were rose to the level of being able to be printed and, and, and be able to back it up with, yes, this is why I printed this. So that's, it's kind of sad that, I don't know. I mean, you would have thought we ran. I mean, I'm talking, I mail my paper to every single mailbox in Stewart County, and we ran eight, a series of eight stories. Somebody took up more than a half a page in the newspaper. And I mean, the, you know, the DA got involved, like we did this story here in April of 2016, that the DA was seeking help with the Atkins Stout case. And that's when. The district attorney, Ray Crouch, uh, was at um, Legends Bank, and he was with the sisters of Carla and Dickie, Miss Trish Gordon, and Deborah Singleton. They were also present. And, uh, you know, they met at the Legends Bank building from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and he asked, he said, if you have any information pertaining to the case, please come forward. And uh, nothing ever come from that. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if uh, if there were things that came from that that maybe, um, you know, and then the governor, even we finally got a press release where the governor offered $5,000 in uh, reward money. The mayor, Robin Brandon, uh, who, you know, his wife is uh, fam was family uh, with the girls, and they offered, I believe, a $10,000 reward for information, and the family offered money. So, you know, there's been rewards out there. There's been everything, uh, I think, that can be done. And I don't know if, um, 
if there's information out there, I don't know if it maybe has died with some people that were have been mentioned that are no longer here, or if it's not credible. And who knows if these people might have, uh, you know, actually been there or actually witnessed something, or if they did read about it and then, uh, you know, take that to be a an actual memory. Uh, so it's hard to get credible evidence at this stage. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. You know, one thing, though, that I will say, um, thank you for sharing that story, Danny, about um, the fellow who had and was tracking a lot of information and seemed to have details. It kind of indicates to me that there may be people out there who have information and who haven't come forward yet. And obviously, back in 2015, when they held the vigil, when, um, when DA Ray Crouch was asking for people to come forward, you know, it's been top of mind and people just might not have been ready. We're hoping that, you know, as time goes on, um, people may become more and more ready. I don't know, just keeping it top of mind. I feel like the fact that people do have information out there is, is the positive element of it all. Well, I have heard a lot of things. I mean, I've heard some names mentioned that closely match the composite sketches and that have a, a, a kind of a, a connection to the case. But that's, again, one of those things that would I would never print a name in the newspaper uh, on hearsay. Right. You, you know, uh, so I don't know if some of these things have been followed up on by the TBI. I, I mean, they should be followed up on by the FBI. It was done on land between the lakes, which is federal land, and that was one of the arguments from the get-go on who had jurisdiction on this. And uh, so, you know, maybe you got to think that, uh, so we were coming up on, let's see, we had the 36th anniversary in in, you know, in 2016, so we're coming up on the 40th anniversary, um, you know, and maybe uh, we can ask for uh, people, if you'd like for me to run something in the paper, uh, we can kind of rehash some of the old stories and stuff, uh, and maybe put people, ask if someone would contact you, maybe they'd feel more comfortable contacting y'all than they would law enforcement, I don't know. Probably not if y'all put them on video on the internet, but uh, if you just talk to them on the phone, they might do that. So. Well, we always keep any sources anonymous that want to be, obviously. Um, you know, Danny, one thing I wanted to say real quick, in that paper you had with General Crouch where the, the composite was there and the age progression, you know, back when the original um, composite came out, you know, that paper was never printed locally. So when you said you, when you bought the paper and you put it out, you put it in everyone's mailbox. So what a difference that made when you were giving it to all the locals, because you know, the family never even saw that original composite and the family never saw the paper that we put out like that, or when we put out that article about the gun that was supposedly found and the different articles, um, those are things that no one ever saw locally. Though it was put out in, like in the, you know, Houston County and around Paris and different places. Um, I mean, what a difference that made. I mean, do you believe that? Like, these are things that people in, um, you know, Dover never saw at the time. 
I know, and, and I don't know, like I said, I really feel like that a lot of it was that law enforcement at that time, and to this day, has never dealt with anything like that ever as before. So, that, you know, that could be part of it, but also, I have a feeling they probably felt like nobody locally could have done that, and that it had to have been someone traveling through. Mm. Uh, it's the only thing I can think of. I mean, like I said, I was so far removed from what happened at the, 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 you know, at the time of my life that, I, you know, I was, I wasn't running with that crowd. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know the girls. So it was kind of hard, but yeah, I feel like if anybody could have known anything, it would have been from putting this, I mean, in everybody's mouth. And it, it is when this story, it is when this ran that I got, I got messages on Facebook. Mm-hmm. That showed that there were some more than one person that thought that they felt like they knew who this could be, and there was a connection with someone that you know was kind of eerie at the time. And and like I said, I've never once been asked for any information from a TDI agent, which I thought was kind of strange. Well, you might now. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't ask for things that. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe I should watch what I what you wish for, Dan. Yeah. Well, I feel like, and I know the one that was assigned to the case at the time. I think he got assigned somewhere else. But I also feel like a lot of it, though, honestly, you know, D.A. Crouch. I mean, he really did try to get new information and he met with the family and he tried as hard as he could, I believe, to get credible new information. And I did hear of CBI agents going and interviewing people. So I, I wouldn't say that they just uh, washed their hands of it, but I'm thinking that perhaps there just wasn't enough credible evidence at the time. And I'm not saying that there might not be now, and I hope that there will be. I truly do. And any help I can give to y'all or law enforcement or anything, I would I would do anything to try and find out who did that. Or who knows, if anybody knows anything about who did it. Um, even if, you know, they knew somebody that's no longer here, no longer with us, uh, that passed away or something like that, I mean, any information would still be helpful and would be helpful for the family to have some closure to, to what happened. So anything I can do, I, I, I definitely would do it. Well, thank you, Danny, and thank you so much for your time today. It's been most appreciated. Yes, thank well, you. I, I appreciate what y'all are doing, too. I mean, you you really are. You're keeping it going, and that's about all we can do. And like I said, I, for, I felt like for a whole entire year, I kept it at top of mind awareness in the newspaper that was mailed to every mailbox. So even people that hadn't heard about the case and stuff learned more about it than they had been people that had always been here too so I feel like that at the very least there ought to be some people out there that know something um, and if maybe they could start thinking but like I said you know I had I had some uh, people very trustworthy people too that were said that they that the girls weren't up there at the store uh, you know that day so like I said there's so many different things out there but it's hard to trust somebody's memory from 40 years ago. Too.
So I've talked to Danny several times throughout this last year, and he has been a great source and wealth of information, um, you know, coming from Stewart County. And I've gotten to know the community through Danny a lot. And, and he was able to send me articles, you know, written um, the eight part series that was written, you know, mostly from David Ross. And um, he sent me those hard copy articles. So I was able to dive through them and, you know, get some segments from there, some things we hadn't heard before in those articles. And um, I've appreciated Danny and his art, his interview was amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, he really was able to talk to us about, um, you know, how he would, how he delivered those newspapers in the mailboxes. And, you know, what did you think? I thought the same thing. I actually really appreciated Danny's interview because I feel like we've had a lot of conversations with people that were close to the family or close to the case. And I felt like his input was very objective yet um, still had a lot of great details about the case. I just really appreciated his perspective on everything. Yeah, and you know, he was one of the first ones that really brought up about that day uh, General Crouch came to the town and came to the bank and people were able to come and talk about, um, you know, anonymously come in and talk about things they knew. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a big day um, in, um, for the town. and. And Danny really put, shed some light on that, on yeah. how General Crouch is really trying to help this case. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was great talking to him. In 2019, Lainey and I started Murder at Land Between the Lakes to be a voice for the girls and for the family, to help reach a larger audience and see what we could do to help um, get their voices out there and get their names out there, just so everybody else could know what happened to Carla and Vicki. Today, we have reached over 60,000 listens just on the podcast alone. And we also uh, created a Facebook page, which has also reached a larger audience as well. So not everyone's on the Facebook page that's on the podcast and not everyone's on the podcast is on the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, I just wanted to let everyone know how I got to know um, the family. So I went to school with BJ Gordon, which is Trisha's son, and that's how I got to know the case a little bit. And Lainey and I are both grew up in Tennessee and now live in New Jersey. This is a little background on the two of us and how we started get, started the podcast and got to know each other mm-hmm. and got to know the family of um, Trish Gordon and BJ and Carla and Vicki. So first of all, we'd like to thank everyone for tuning in and listening and being a part of this journey as well. Yeah. So um, today um, we are also aware of the invested, you know, the, the, the developments that have happened throughout this year mm-hmm. and learning what's happened over 40 years has been a challenge as well as mm-hmm. um, riveting as well. I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, it's been amazing. I'll be honest with you. When Amelia and I first started talking about this case and about her connection and about actually sharing the news of this with all of you listeners, it was really exciting. And we were thinking, okay, so we'll be able to kind of tell the story and get the details and, and that will be that. And as we got into it, it was really the engagement and the response from the folks that were listening and bringing information to us and feeling comfortable talking to us. And we really developed a, a, a relationship almost with Carla and Vicki and the whole case and the community in order to 
really start diving in more and more into the details and becoming um, really passionate about making sure that we're able to make a positive impact on hopefully finding justice for Carla and Vicki at the end of the day. I mean, it was really more of a, let's tell the story. And now it's become so, so, so much more throughout this year. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. We really were looking to mm -hmm. tell a story, not to be so much investigative. And mm -hmm. you're right. I feel like we're part of a community and part of a family and it's become really, really close to my heart. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I can speak for you as well. And we have learned so much. And there are many things that we can't share on the podcast. Um, many things that we can't share publicly and we wouldn't. And like we protected many sources, mm -hmm. um, many things that people have shared with us, we would never share names as, we, as promised. When people mm -hmm. call us, we promise not to share names and some information um, we don't share publicly, but we do share information with the proper mm -hmm. law enforcement. Um, we give the information as needed to all the proper authorities. So um, everything that we do receive that we think is important, um, we do receive a lot of information, mm -hmm. some deemed possibly rumors, um, but it's it's been very helpful. And the family information, things they didn't know about their sisters, mm -hmm. um, you know, good things. They've learned stories. And some of these stories you're going to hear in the next few um, episodes. So yeah. we're excited for you guys to hear all that. Um, we've also received some great questions from listeners. And today we want to answer several of those questions. So we'll start, yeah. you know, we'll do a little bit of Q&A with each other. So, yeah. So we'll start with question number one. Um, and pardon me looking down because we've taken some notes. So I'm just uh, just making sure that we captured the, uh, the essence of each question. Many crime-related podcasts just report information about criminal cases. This podcast seems to have become more of an investigative podcast, correct? So we sort of just answered that. Yeah. So yeah, um, right. We didn't intend for that to happen. We really just wanted to tell the story. And we were actually going to give this platform to many people in the community and have them come on and tell the story. And it didn't really turn out that way. It wasn't mm -hmm. exactly what we thought was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it turns out we did a lot of the investigating ourselves and found out a lot of information through you know, the cooperation of everybody in the community. So yeah, that's yeah. how it really worked out for us. So, so let me ask you this one. Uh, okay. What do you do when a listener offers you information that might be relevant to solving the case? Um, well, we actually just kind of talked about that as well. Um, I will say that we keep our sources anonymous. Um, we're always open to having a conversation and hearing what any of our listeners have to say. Um, however, if we do have information that is really relevant to solving the case, we will share that with the appropriate people who can make a difference in actually moving this case forward. So. Um, so yeah, so hopefully we will, uh, we will have made a positive impact on helping to gather additional information that maybe hasn't been uncovered previously. Okay, let's see. The next question. Um, how does Carla and Vicki's family feel about you guys doing this podcast? Well, we can let, should we just let Trish speak? Yeah, let's let, let's let Trish answer that question. Hi, Trish. How are you? Fine, ladies. How are you guys? We're good. 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 Thank you so much. So, Trish, we want to start by thanking you so much for giving us this year to dive into your family a little bit and letting us get intimate with you and your family and letting us get to know Carla and Vicki a little bit. And thank you for again giving us this opportunity to see what we can do to help your family. 
Um, I wanted to start by telling you what really caught my attention. Um, when we started looking into the case, there was a quote you made. You said, they will get their justice someday. They will get what's coming to them, whether it be in my lifetime or not. When I saw that quote you made, I thought, wow, you know, Trish Gordon, she is really strong and she's really tough. And so when I contacted BJ, I asked him, you know, tell me some more about your mom. And he told me, you know, that you were, how tough you were and what a strong woman you were and how much you meant to him. And so right away, I thought, I can't wait to talk to you. And from that point on, I've had such a strong connection to you. So this has been a year now. And I think I've talked to you, I, I, I don't know how many times now, and I can't tell you what you mean to me and how much your family means to me. So I just want to thank you again for giving us this opportunity to be with you and be with you right now. So I just want to say thank you. And um, let's start by talking a little bit about Carla and Vicki. Um, can you tell us um, a little bit about um, 40 years ago, Let's talk about the girls. What do you remember about that time? Um, well, I remember, um, you know, the girls when they were small. Of course, I'll start there when they were, um, I being the oldest, um, you know, they were small little babies at the time. And they were totally opposite. Carla was a little chubby-cheeked, uh, blonde, curly-haired um, little child. And Vicky was the total opposite. She was freckle-faced and skinny. And, you know, through the years, I mean, they were totally opposite in looks and, um, you know, had their own personalities, but they were alike in so many ways. Um, they were very sweet, very caring, very giving, um, very appreciative. Um, just, you know, your sweet girls. I don't remember them ever having any words between them. Um, you know, they grew up into beautiful teenagers. Um, they were, you know, they, um, they were forced to mature um, sooner than most teenagers. But, you know, I think that made them a little stronger um, than, you know, uh, the normal teenager because they had to um, take care of themselves a lot. And then they took care of Brian um, being the older child like I did. So... And so Trish, you were 22 when they went missing and you were the oldest of eight kids, right? Yes. And you yes. had already, you were already married and had moved away. So you moved to Paris uh, and they were yes. living at the time, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, we were living in Paris and they were living in Dover. And, um, you know, we, um, like I said, they were appreciative. I remember we would come home to visit or go and visit them on the holidays. And they were so excited that Trish and Bob were coming home. We'd have Christmas presents, you know. And so they were, they were very sweet girls. But uh, yes, they were living there um, in Dover when this happened. Um, had, had been there less than a year. Mm -hmm. So my brother called me um, at work one afternoon and said they hadn't come home. And um, I'm like, well, I'm sure they'll be home tomorrow. You know, I didn't really think much of it. And then the next day, you know, I hear from them, they're like, he's, they're not back yet. So that's when, you know, we kind, kind of started to realize, okay, something's, something's up here. 
what what happened or or how did you guys move forward in those three weeks after the girls went missing? You know, it was pretty difficult and uh, it's really, there was a lot of fear and a lot of uh, questions as to where they were. And a lot of it I remember and a lot of it I don't. And I don't know if it was out of shock or, um, you know, I, I can't recall the entire period. Um, I know I continued to work um, you know, on my days off, I would go down and, um, you know, meet with my mom or, um, I remember the sheriff coming by a couple of times, the TBI agent to check on us. And, um, I remember the youth service officer, Barbara Wallace coming by and she told us they'd been spotted in Nashville in a soap line. And we're like, what, you know, why that's first off, they wouldn't be brave enough to go to a big city like that. Um, and I'm like, there, there's no need for that. Um, that's not true, but we just, it was just a day to day thing, a day to day and an hour to hour thing. And every time the phone would ring, um, you know, like at my house, we would rush to pick it up, hoping we had information. Someone had information. Oh, they're here. You know, uh, we went through the process of checking with all their friends in Paris, Henry County, um, just dead ends. I mean, nobody knew where they were. It's just like they just vanished. And then the rumors started to swirl. Um, well, they were seen here, they were seen there. And there were so many rumors and so many um, people, you know, telling us things. And uh, it, it was just kind of, we were in a whirlwind for three weeks. Just, just a whirlwind. Yeah, I can't even imagine living hour to hour just waiting for some information. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, and you go to work. I mean, I would go to work and it's just like, I don't even, I do not remember. I do not remember going to work. I don't remember, you know, it's just, it happened, but it's just a process. You're just going through just, you know, living in the moment and getting through. That's, that's basically, that's basically all we did. <laughs> Yep. So it's been 40 years, right? It's been 40 years and, and and we, um, there's still nobody who has been identified as a suspect or has been put on trial. How have you felt about the investigation over the past 40 years and how do you feel about it today? Um, I think in the beginning, um, looking back and, and I was young and, you know, um, I assumed that they were doing everything in their power and maybe they were, maybe they were doing everything they could possibly do uh, with, you know, uh, what they had as far as law enforcement officials, whatever. Um, looking back, I feel like there were a lot of things that they could have done differently. A lot of things that um, shouldn't have been done. I don't think it was, um, you know, handled as quickly I don't think the seriousness of it, I don't think they took that into consideration as quickly as they should have. Um, but I think over the years, um, it's, it's been getting better. They have worked with the family more closely. And I'm very happy today with how it is progressing. Um, the, um, I still work very closely with um, the TBI and the DA 
and they do keep me informed. And, um, I, you know, I can't really comment or won't comment on um, what is taking place right now. But we, my family and I, we are very, um, very pleased with how it is progressing today. Oh, good. I hope that's, that means there's good news to come then. I absolutely think um, there's going to be an out, a good outcome. I really do. That's great. I truly believe that. That's great to hear, Trish. And I will have to agree with BJ too. I, your son, BJ, you are definitely one of the strongest women I have ever come in contact with. Um, I put up a good shield. <laughs> but well, thank you yeah i appreciate that yeah well one of the questions i wanted to ask you too is you know over the last few years you guys you've you had a vigil for the girls and do you feel like the vigils that you've held have you know helped keep the girls you know the remembrance of the girls um do you feel like this is something else i've asked in the past do you feel like that's helped um keep the girls' names out there? And do you feel like it kind of comes and goes and it keeps the girls' you know, names um, alive then and then it kind of goes away? Or do you think it helps um, keep it going? Like, do you think throughout the years? I think that when we started doing the vigils again, I think people were like, they had forgotten. They had forgotten until we did the first vigil. They're just like, oh, I remember that. Because like, you know, 40 years, a lot of people have left the area they've passed on. So people had forgotten about this case until we did the first vigil. And I think the each year they've become more effective, but I, I don't think that alone keeps the girl's name and, and memory out there. I have to think that this case has gotten so much attention and the momentum is just, has just been uh, outstanding this past year. And I think a lot of that is dedicated to you ladies doing the podcast. Um, I think you have brought some really uh, needed attention uh, to the girls. And I think we, you guys have put some valuable information out there that is going to um, help to solve this case. So I think the podcast paired with the vigil, um, I think it's a consistent uh, tool. It's been consistent keeping um, their name out there on a day-to-day -day basis. So I appreciate that. Oh, well, absolutely, Trish. Well, you're welcome. And I think it's definitely time. It's been 40 years. So I think this was definitely an important time um, for the girls. And I think we always need to keep, you know, their names out there, keep, you know, be a voice for the girls. And I think it's also due to the family. The family's done an amazing job uh, keeping their names out there. And I, I saw a quote um, somewhere on a Facebook page where a woman said, you know, this, you know, to some people, this is um, a murder mystery to some people, but to a lot of people, it's a family tragedy. And I think that was a very powerful quote. And I think that's very important to a lot of people, for a lot of people to remember. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's a tragedy for our, for our family. Um, a lot of people look at it as an unsolved mystery okay, or an unsolved crime, or uh, a spooky story to tell, don't go to Dover, that's where the two girls were murdered, or don't go to LBL, but, you know, they were, they were children, and they were my sisters, and they were part of our family, 
and they were <clears throat> tragically, tragically taken from us by an animal. <laughs> There's no other definition. So yes, it's a tragedy. It, you know, it's not, it's not a, an unsolved um, ghost story that you can tell. It is a true tragedy. And, um, you know, to some, like you said, Amy, um, if they weren't living in that time period, in that moment, it, they don't understand, but it, it is real life and we live with it every day. It's real life every day. Um, do you have anything else you would like to say to our, all of our listeners and everyone that's listening to the podcast now? Um, yes, I would like to say um, thank you to everyone that has shared any information that they have had. Um, and I would ask, I'm pleading, I'm begging uh, from the bottom of my heart um, to anyone out there that has any, um, any small piece of information, even though they think it's trivial, um, it may be the biggest piece to the puzzle that we're still missing. So I would urge everyone, um, everyone to use their faith over fear and share anything that you might have concerning the girls, anything. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you, Trish. Thank you. Good to see you. You too. Thank you. Okay. Okay, question. There have been allegations of some kind of cover-up from the outset of this case. Can you speak to those allegations? Well, sometimes it's just that, allegations. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear about evidence that went missing. Um, we heard that from very specific sources that we keep anonymous as well. And again, you know, 40 years ago is 40 years ago, and none of that was documented. So not on record so we can only go on what we've been told mm. um and the cover-up again it's allegations so yeah. it's just that an allegation and i don't know if we'll ever know the truth of everything until we actually know what happened yeah what do you think laney i i agree i mean i think it all depends on how you interpret the situation we know that from what we've heard evidence has gone missing which i think has been pretty corroborated but did that evidence go missing because someone specifically wanted it to go missing or did it go missing just because it just happened, you know, mm -hmm. like it was just a mishandling. Like there was not that many murder cases happening in Dover at this time, like figuring out how to actually go about processing this case was probably a little bit of a riding the bike while you're trying to like learn how to do it. So it's like, um, I, I, I agree. I think a lot of these allegations are just allegations right. until they're proven to be true with some sort of hard evidence. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see. A recent episode of the podcast also examines another murder. 
that of Stewart County jail inmate Hugh Allen Heflin, who was found hanging in his cell while in custody for unrelated crimes. Court records say that on September 3rd, 1987, at 12.06 p.m., the deceased was found hanging from the top of his shower stall by means of a noose of strips of bed sheets around his neck. His hands and feet were bound together with strips of bed sheet and a washcloth or towel was stuffed in his mouth. The water was running in the shower stall. Deceased was unconscious when found. At 12.30 p.m., he was pronounced dead by strangulation. In, in his death related, is his death related to the murders of Carla and Vicky? I mean, it's a great question. It's obviously two kind of situations that have a lot of unanswered questions around them and two deaths of very young residents of Dover. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, it kind of goes back to having that hard evidence. Unless we really know what happened to Carla and Vicki, then it's tough to piece the two together in any really strong way. Yeah. And again, it goes back to the alleged phone mm -hmm. call we received about the idea that possibly he was taken down to the scene. Did he see the girls? Was he threatened? Was he part of this at all? I mean, did he see something he shouldn't have seen? Was he threatened? Um, that's something we're not gonna, you know, we won't know until we know the truth, you know, and talking to, you know, uh, Rue Heflin, you know, she was a guest on one of our episodes and, um, and, and, you know, we can play what she said, you know, mm -hmm. I think we have a clip of that. So mm -hmm. let's play that. Um, why do you think someone wanted to take his life? Does she, I mean, to make him be quiet about, um, maybe he didn't know something about Carla and Vicky, or maybe it was about the drug ring we talked about, or what do you think? I personally, I can't speak for anybody but, but Rue, I personally think he knew something. I think he knew things that were so damaging to the good old boys network that existed and still exists to a certain extent in Stewart County. And he was a liability they couldn't afford. I, I think personally based on all these years that have gone by and thinking about it after all these years, I, I think that there is a relationship between what happened to Carla and Vicki and what happened to my brother. At first I didn't, didn't see it, didn't really think so. But the more that I've learned through this wonderful podcast that y'all are doing, the more I have grown to believe that yes, they're related probably more deeply than even I suspect. And I think that all of that had a part to play and why they chose to let my brother hang there and die that day rather than save him. And we, you know, we talked to Rue Heflin, um, Hugh Allen's sister, when we spoke with her, you know, she was, she had a really, you know, riveting conversation and it was really great to talk to her when she was a guest on our, one of our recent episodes. And, and here's another clip of Lainey and I discussing Rue's comments from that conversation. How do we see the Hugh Allen Heflin case possibly being related to Carla and Vicki? Well, we had heard from another source um, that reached out to us and told us that at some point between the girls disappearing and when the girls were found by hikers, that there is a possibility the perpetrator took Hugh Allen Heflin along with a couple of other people down to the crime scene to see the bodies. 
So I don't know, um, you know, exactly when that was, but it was within that three week time frame. So there's a possibility Hugh Allen saw the girls dead. And as we noted with Rue, he knew the girls and he was friends with Vicky. Mm-hmm. So if that is true, you can only imagine how deeply disturbing that could have been. And Rue also did say in our interview um, that he changed um, after September, October of 1980. So could that have been the reason he changed? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. Also, I guess, why would anyone ever take someone to a crime scene where was somebody trying to, to show off that they were a part of this horrific murder or were they possibly using that to, to threaten Hugh Allen and others as kind of this could happen to you type message? Yeah. You wonder, right? Was that a message? So question, the podcast has consistently called for DNA testing on evidence in this case. Is there DNA evidence in this case? Would testing today produce results that such testing didn't yield in the past? What do you think, Amelia? Well, I think, you know, I don't think all the evidence went missing. I think there's definitely still evidence available. And I think that now with today's technology, there has to be DNA on it. There has to be touch DNA. There has to be something left. I mean, I think the girls' clothes should still be available. Um, I, I think there still has to be DNA. And I think you know, fingerprint technology as well as DNA technology, I think that that's still a great possibility. And I think that's how this case can be solved. Yeah. And I agree. I think that, you know, even DNA testing five years ago versus DNA testing today, even DNA testing, what, two years ago versus DNA testing today, the advances still are coming exponentially. So I do think that there are additional techniques and new processes that they can use to potentially get DNA from evidence that they may not have been able to do in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Murder at Land Between the Lakes, special edition of 40 Years Later. If you have any information, please call 1-800-TBI-FINE. That's 1-800-824-3463. You can also reach us at 609-429-0371. That's 609 609- Four two nine zero three seven one. Stay tuned as we begin season two at Murder at Land Between the Lakes, coming soon.